This program is made possible by the members of the show. To sign up, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Bugle, Bill Moyer's Journal, Counterspin, The Young Turks, The Colbert Report, Countdown, The Progressive, and The Rachel Maddow Show with a bonus video clip today for our iPhone app users from The Daily Show. Nuke news now. And uh, President Obama made promises last year, Andy, to to try and help wean America and the world off nuclear weapons. And now that's obviously not going to be easy. The truth is that nuclear weapons are far too addictive ever to be completely free of. They're like heroin. You know, a heroin addict is never not a heroin addict. The best case scenario is that they become a heroin addict who doesn't take heroin anymore, or that they find fame with a band called the Stooges. But this <laughs> last week... Obama made a small step forward and signed a new nuclear pact with Russia. Uh, the pact commits both nations to slash the number of strategic nuclear warheads by one-third and more than half the number of missiles, submarines and bombers that carry them. Now, this might seem to be suddenly happening all too quickly, but don't worry. Andy, this, this reduction still leaves both countries with enough firepower to ensure mutual destruction several times over. So that's a huge relief. <laughs> I, I personally wouldn't be able to sleep at night if we were going to go down to just mutual destruction. I think it really has to be multiple mutual destruction to have any hope of working as a deterrent. <laughs> but it's, it's true that the main impact of this treaty is not so much what it does as well, it symbolises it's, it's a big step for the US and Russia to decide to work together rather than both continue to act like dicks. <laughs> and that, that essentially was the choice available to them. It's not really much more complicated than that. In fact, I believe that was on the second page of the treaty. We'll both try not to act like dicks. <laughs> also, on uh, this Tuesday... Obama unveiled uh, his new nuclear posture review, which openly reduces the circumstances under which the US would consider using nuclear weapons. It states that the United States will not use or threaten to use nuclear weapons against non-nuclear weapon states that are party to the Non-Proliferation Treaty and in compliance with their nuclear non-proliferation obligations. Now, that doesn't seem particularly dramatic, especially when you consider that the review also reserves the right for the US to use nuclear weapons if one of the member states uses a chemical attack against them. So again, a development which is more meaningful symbolically than practically, but that hasn't stopped the response by some conservatives in America from being like a broken fertiliser machine, <laughs> loud and completely full of shit. <laughs> Sarah Palin said that the new policy was like a kid asking for a punch in the face. <laughs> Unfortunately, forgetting the fact that it isn't like that at all. And the next best thing to never thinking that analogy would be never saying it out loud. <laughs> I guess I guess she's right in, in a way, John, but mm. she just hasn't finished the analogy. I guess it's like a kid asking for a punch in the face whilst that kid is armed with an automatic machine gun. <laughs> Well, she, she went on to say, it, it's like getting out there on a playground, a bunch of kids, getting ready to fight, and one of them says, go ahead, punch me in the face, I'm not going to retaliate, do what you want to with me. <laughs> Whereas, in fact, what it's actually like is a kid going into a playground and saying, who likes being hit in the face? Exactly, no one. So <laughs> let's all agree not to hit each other in the face. Anyone, for instance, who promises not to hit me in the face, I promise I will not hit them in the face. <laughs> but if they they do then hit me in the face, I will definitely hit them in the face back. And let's not focus on that part. Let's focus on the everyone not getting punched in the face bit instead. Whereas Sarah Palin, for instance, is like a kid going into that playground during the discussion and saying, hey, I'm pretty sure he's asking us all to hit him in the face. Unless I'm either an idiot or willfully misinterpreting what he's saying for my own ends. But I'm really pretty sure he wants us to hit him in the face. We've been waiting all our lives.
The war in Afghanistan has claimed more than 1,000 American lives, and in the last two years alone, the lives of more than 4,000 Afghan civilians. It's costing American taxpayers over $3.5 billion every month, a total of some $264 billion so far. But for all that, in the words of one policy analyst quoted by the New York Times this week, there are no better angels about to descend on Afghanistan. The news from that torturous battleground continues to dismay, discourage, and enrage. America's designated driver there, Hamid Karzai, is proving increasingly unstable behind the wheel. The United States put Karzai in power, and our soldiers have been fighting and dying on his behalf ever since, despite the widespread corruption in his government. Now he's making threats against the Western coalition that is shedding blood and treasure on his behalf. Even more disturbing for the moment are the civilian deaths from nighttime raids and aerial bombings by American and other NATO troops. Just this week, we learned of an apparent cover-up following a special forces raid in February that killed five civilians, including three women, two of whom were pregnant. It's believed bullets were gouged from the women's bodies to conceal evidence of American involvement. This slaughter of innocence has led the pro-American Economist magazine to question whether our entire effort in Afghanistan has been nothing but a meaningless exercise of misguided violence. With me is a man with first-hand experience of war. Andrew Basevich served 23 years, some of them in Vietnam, before retiring from the Army. He's now professor of history and international relations at Boston University. Just this week, he was at a U.S. Army War College symposium on the highly pertinent question, how do we know when a war is over? His book, The Limits of Power, was a bestseller, and his latest, Washington Rules, America's Path to Permanent War, comes out this summer. Andrew Basevich, welcome back to the journal. Thank you very much. These civilian casualties that we've been hearing about, they're inevitable in, in, in war, right? Sure they are, uh, but I think that uh, what's particularly important about the incidents that we're reading about is that they really call into question uh, U.S. strategy. I mean, when General McChrystal conceived of this counterinsurgency approach in Afghanistan, uh, one of the sort of the core principles was that we would act in ways that would demonstrate our benign intentions. We're supposed to be protecting the population. Uh, and when it turns out that U.S. forces are killing noncombatants and there are repeated incidents that have occurred, I think it calls into question uh, the sincerity, uh, the seriousness of the strategy, or it calls into question the extent to which McChrystal is actually in control of the forces that he commands. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any noticeable change and any noticeable reduction in the frequency with which these incidents are occurring. So, I mean, were I an Afghan, I think I would uh, uh, not not place a whole heck of a lot of uh, credibility on the the claims that uh, you know we're here to help. The uh, that nighttime incident in February that I referred to, you know, uh, one woman killed was a pregnant mother of ten. Another was pregnant mother of six children. And our people peddled the story at the time that they had been stabbed to death by family members on an otherwise festive occasion. Was that a lie, do you think, a deliberate lie? Based on the reports that we read in the New York Times, yes, it was a deliberate lie. I mean, I think, I think one of the uh, hidden uh, issues here, and it's one that really needs to be brought to the surface, is that we have two kinds of forces operating in uh, Afghanistan. We have conventional forces. The Marines and the infantry. And, and, right, and, and, and they are accompanied by reporters. Uh, we, we get at least some amount of information about what these forces are doing and, and how they're doing it. But in a sense, we have a second army. And the second army are the units that uh, comprise uh, special operations forces. They exist in secrecy. They operate in secrecy. Clearly, there was a violation of some kind in that incident in February that killed the pregnant women. The question is, are they being held accountable? Who's being fired? Who's being disciplined? What actions are being taken to ensure that incidents like that will not occur again? And again, this, this secrecy, the fact that they operate behind this black curtain, uh, I think uh, makes it more difficult for that kind of accountability to be asserted. To whom are they responsible behind that black curtain? 
Well, the, presumably they're responsible to General McChrystal, who is the senior U.S. and NATO commander in Afghanistan. And, and McChrystal himself uh, comes out of the special operations community. That's his entire background is in special operations. And you, and you might wonder whether or not that gives him a better understanding of special operations to enable him to use that more precise, that capability more precisely, or you might wonder if it makes him too sympathetic to special operations. They're his guys, uh, so give them a break. General McChrystal himself has said that we've shot an, and this is his word, not mine, an amazing number of people over there who did not seem to be a threat to his troops. I think that is, that is that's clearly the case. When McChrystal was put in command uh, last year and devised his counterinsurgency strategy, the essential core principle of that strategy uh, is that we will protect the population, we will protect the people. And the contradiction is that ever since President Obama gave McChrystal the go-ahead to implement that strategy, we have nonetheless continued to have this series of incidents in which we're not only not protecting the population, but indeed we're, we're killing non-combatants. Well, given what's happening in the killing of these innocent people, is the very term military victory in Afghanistan an oxymoron? Oh, I, 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 this is, yes. And I think one of the most interesting and indeed uh, perplexing uh, things that's happened in the past three, four years is that in many respects the officer corps itself has given up on the idea of military victory. We could find any number of quotations from General Petraeus, the Central Command Commander, and General McChrystal, the, uh, the immediate commander in Afghanistan, in which they say that there is no military solution in Afghanistan, that we will not win a military victory, that the only solution to be uh, gained, if there is one, is through bringing to success this project of, of armed nation building. And the reason that's interesting, at least to a military historian of my generation, of the Vietnam generation, is that after Vietnam, this humiliation that we had experienced the collective purpose of the officer corps, in a sense, was to demonstrate that war worked, to demonstrate that war could be purposeful, that out of that collision on the battlefield would come decision, would come victory, and that soldiers could claim purposefulness for their profession by saying to both the political leadership and to the American people, this is what we can do. We, we can, in certain situations, solve very difficult problems by giving you military victory. Well, here in the year 2010, nobody in the officer corps believes in military victory. And in that sense, the officer corps has, I think, unwittingly, really forfeited its claim to providing a unique and important service to American society. I mean, why, why, if indeed the purpose of the exercise in Afghanistan is to, I mean, to put it crudely, drag this country into the modern world, why put a four-star general in charge of that? Why, 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 not, why not put a successful mayor of a big city? Why not, why not put a, a, a legion of social reformers? Uh, because the war in Afghanistan is not a war as the American military traditionally conceives of war. A single minute of your time has never had the potential to make as big an impact as right now. I'm in the running to receive a scholarship to help pay my way to Netroots Nation this year, and all I need is your vote of support to get it. I hope to raise around 600 votes to secure a slot among the winners, but I'm not there yet. All you have to do is visit bestoftheleft.com and click the banner near the top for the scholarship competition and then add your name to the growing list of grassroots supporters. One minute of your time can get me that much closer to attending Netroots Nation and saving hundreds of dollars in the process. Thanks so much for your support.
It may have sounded at first a little like an onion headline, but it was in the April 26th Washington Post. Amid outrage over civilian deaths in Pakistan, CIA turns to smaller missiles. It was, as you might guess, a story based on assurances from government officials, anonymous, as you might guess, of technological improvements to drone missiles and advanced surveillance techniques, resulting in more accurate operations. No one will say what kinds of weapons are being used, much less specify the improvements, but readers are told, quote, two counterterrorism officials said in interviews that evolving technology and tactics have kept the number of civilian deaths extremely low. Close quote. It's a pig in a poke, in other words, but the Post wants you to know it's a very fine pig. It's one of those stories where all readers can do is accept the government's anonymous claims at face value, since they won't go on the record or share their data with independent researchers. But it makes you wonder why papers don't just print Pentagon press releases, especially when, as in this case, the reporter's analysis includes statements like this one, quote, the drone strikes have been controversial in Pakistan, where many view them as an infringement on national sovereignty. Close quote. Yes, many people do look on secret, deadly airstrikes conducted by another country as just exactly that. President Obama was in Afghanistan not too long ago, as you know, and he attempted to state the purpose of our war there to our troops. Our broad mission is clear. We are going to disrupt and dismantle, defeat and destroy al-Qaeda and its extremist allies. That is our mission. And to accomplish that goal, our objectives here in Afghanistan are also clear. We're going to deny al-Qaeda safe haven. We're going to reverse the Taliban's momentum. We're going to strengthen the capacity of Afghan security forces and the Afghan government so that they can begin taking responsibility and gain confidence of the Afghan people. That sounds to me like a traditional, classical military assignment to find the enemy and defeat him. Well, but there's also then the reference to uh, sort of building the capacity of the, of the Afghan government. And that's where, of course, the president, he'd just come from this meeting with President Karzai. Basically, as we understand from press reports, the, the president sort of administered a tongue lashing to uh, Karzai to tell him to get his act together, which then was followed by Karzai issuing his own tongue lashing, uh, calling into question. Uh, whether or not he actually was committed to supporting the United States uh, in its efforts in Afghanistan. And again, this kind of does bring us back, in a way, uh, to Vietnam, where we found ourselves harnessed to uh, allies, uh, partners, uh, that turned out to be uh, either uh, incompetent uh, or corrupt or simply did not share our understanding of what needed to be done for that country. What does it say to you as a soldier that our, our political leaders time and again send men and women to fight for, in behalf of, corrupt guys like Karzai? Well, we don't learn from history. Uh, and there is this persistent and I think almost inexplicable belief that the use of military force in some godforsaken country on the far side of the planet will not only yield some kind of purposeful result but by extension will produce significant benefits for the, for the United States. I mean, the, 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 I think that one of the obvious things about the Afghanistan war 
that is so striking and, and yet so frequently overlooked is that we're now in the ninth year of this war. It is the longest war in American history, and it is a war for which there is no end in sight. And to my mind, it is a war that is utterly devoid of strategic purpose. And the fact that that gets so little attention from our political leaders, from the press, or from our fellow citizens, I think is simply appalling, especially when you consider the amount of money we're spending over there and the lives that are being lost, whether American or Afghan. But President Obama says that our purpose is to prevent the Taliban from creating another rogue state from which the jihadists can attack the United States. It's happened on 9-11. Isn't that a strategic purpose? I mean, if, if we could wave a magic wand tomorrow and achieve in Afghanistan all the purposes that General McChrystal would like us to achieve, would the jihadist threat be substantially reduced as a consequence? And does anybody think that somehow jihadism is centered or headquartered in Afghanistan? When you think about it for three seconds, you say, well, of course it's not. It, it, is, a, it is a transnational movement. They can come from Yemen. They can come from... They can from come from Brooklyn. So, so, the, so the, the notion that somehow because the 9-11 attacks were concocted in this place, as indeed they were, the notion that therefore the transformation of Afghanistan will provide some guarantee that there won't be another 9-11 is patently absurd. Quite frankly, the notion that we can prevent another 9-11 by invading and occupying and transforming countries is absurd. In this context then, what do we do about what is a real threat from people who want to kill us, the jihadists? What do we do about that? First of all, we need to assess the threat realistically. Uh, Osama bin Laden is not Adolf Hitler. Al-Qaeda is not Nazi Germany. Al-Qaeda poses a threat. It does not pose an existential threat. We should view Al-Qaeda as the equivalent of an international criminal conspiracy, sort of a mafia that in some way or another um, draws its energy or legitimacy from a distorted understanding of a particular uh, religious tradition. And as with any other international criminal conspiracy, the proper response is a police effort. I mean, a ruthless, sustained international police effort to identify the thugs, root out the networks, and destroy it. Something that would take a long period of time and, and would no, no more succeed fully in eliminating the threat than the NYPD is able to fully eliminate criminality in New York City. You participated this week in a symposium at the Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania on the subject, how will we know when a war ends? So <laughs> the boots are on the ground there. The troops are there, committed at least through 2011. What do we do? Well, I have to say, and I mean, I, I, I'm sure this sounds too simplistic. It would be way too simplistic for people in Washington. But if you want to get out of a war, you get out of a war. I mean, you call General McChrystal and say your mission has changed, and your mission is to uh, organize an orderly extrication of U.S. forces. You know, if, if it were me, I'd say, General McChrystal, call me back in two weeks and tell me what the plan is and how long it's going to how long it's going to take. But war termination for us has come to be very difficult because of our inability to understand the war that we undertake. We, 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 we are now close to a decade into what the Pentagon now calls the long war, and it is a war in which one half of one percent of the American people bear the burden, and the other 99.5 percent basically going about their daily life as if the war did not exist. I mean, the, the, the great paradox of the long war is that it seems the long war consists of a series of campaigns with Iraq and Afghanistan being the two most important, although one could add Pakistan and Yemen to the list, in which there 
there seems to be no way to wind down the campaign or to claim from the campaign some positive benefit that allows us to say that the end date of the long war is any closer. And we do find ourselves in this circumstance where permanent war now seems to have become the norm. And we don't know what to do about that. There's something else that President Obama said when he was in Afghanistan. Take a look at this. The United States of America does not quit once it starts on something. You don't quit. The American Armed Services does not quit. We keep at it. We persevere. And together with our partners, we will prevail. I am absolutely confident of that. How do you read that? Well, I think the president has, um, he's placed on this enormous bet. A bet involves 100,000 American soldiers. Uh, and um, the uh, deterioration of circumstances, for example, if Karzai turns out to be an unreliable ally, uh, even that will make it extraordinarily difficult for the president to now say, well, I've changed my mind. I'm going to take that, I'm going to take that bet off the table. So in that sense, the rhetoric is not at all surprising, I think. Uh, of course, it's historically incorrect. We, we quit uh, after the Mogadishu firefight in, in Somalia. Uh, I think that it probably was prudent to quit. Uh, that doesn't make Somalia a great place today. We quit. Uh, in Vietnam, uh, having paid an enormous cost to try to maintain the viability of South Vietnam. So there are times actually when it makes sense to quit. Should we quit in Afghanistan? I think so. I mean, uh, again, I, 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 I believe that ultimately uh, uh, a sound foreign policy should be informed by an enlightened understanding of one's own interests. That's what we pay people like President Obama big money to do, to advance our collective interests, what's good for this country, this people. And the perpetuation of the war in Afghanistan uh, is not good for this country and for our people. Why? Uh, because uh, we are squandering our treasure. We are losing lives for no purpose. And ultimately, the perpetuation of this unnecessary war does, I think, serve to exacerbate the, the problems within the Islamic world, rather than reducing those problems. Sean Hannity is going to be talking to uh, Gary Johnson, uh, his former New Mexico governor. They have an interesting theory on uh, how we should pay for the Iraq war. Let's go to clip number 10. Let me go on one other issue with you. You uh, are not supportive of the war. You were not supportive of the war effort in Iraq. Uh, you're not supportive of the war effort in Afghanistan. And originally I, I was. Originally mm -hmm. Afghanistan was about Os getting Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. But you're not any longer. You think we should pull well, out? Well, they're not there. And we're building roads, schools, bridges, hospitals in Iraq and you Afghanistan. We're well, we're borrowing 43 cents out of every dollar right now that we're spending. I, I just think that we've bankrupted ourselves mm -hmm. uh, and that we're going to be of no use to anyone worldwide is a bankrupt nation. I actually have had an idea, nobody listens to little old Sean Hannity, but I'm like, I think the Iraqis, with all their oil resources, need to pay us back for their liberation. Every oh. single solitary penny. I, I really, need to I really thought that from the beginning. I thought yeah. that, that was kind of part of the part of the It should have been part of the deal. It should right? have been part of the deal. I think it should be now. I think they owe us a lot for that. 
how repulsive are these people? Hundreds of thousands of innocent Iraqi civilians died in a war we didn't need to start. There are some credible analysts who believe that number is in the millions. But I'm taking the conservative number, which is a minimum of 300,000 innocent Iraqi civilians that would not have died otherwise, died because of the war we started. And Hannity thinks that we should be rewarded for that and that the Iraqis owe us money for that. Today, 84 people died in bombings and killings in Iraq as it continues to devolve again. Now what, for the third time, the fourth time in a row. All those hideous, awful murders, let alone what we did. Oh, our accidental bombings, our collateral damage, the thousands that were killed as we intended to bring them liberation. And what is Hannity's proposal for that? Well, you owe us. You owe us money. And you know what? What might be helpful is if we took all your oil money. Yeah, that'd be really helpful. That would engender a lot of trust between us and the Iraqis. And that wouldn't endanger our troops there at all. That's a brilliant idea. These people are despicable, man. I, I don't know how they live with themselves. You can now support this podcast as easily as by shopping online. The next time you need to make a purchase of just about anything, simply visit bestofleft.com and use our Amazon.com search box to find what you're looking for. The search box is located right on the side of the website. You can't miss it. When you make your purchase, we get a little commission. It's just another effortless, completely free way for you to help keep the show going strong. Thanks for your support. That's it for the journal, except for this postscript to last week's conversation with the historian and military analyst Andrew Basevich, who had this to say about Afghanistan. It is the longest war in American history, and it is a war for which there is no end in sight. And to my mind, it is a war that is utterly devoid of strategic purpose. And the fact that that gets so little attention, I think is simply appalling, especially when you consider the amount of money we're spending over there and the lives that are being lost, whether American or Afghan. Hardly had we finished talking about the rising anger over Afghan civilians killed by American and Allied troops, the news came of more death. American troops opened fire on a passenger bus near Kandahar. They thought the bus threatened a military convoy. At least five Afghan civilians were killed and 18 wounded. Soon, a loud and angry crowd was demonstrating against the United States, followed by a suicide bombing at the Kandahar office of Afghan intelligence that killed four officials and another five civilians. All of this, as General David Petraeus, commander of our forces in the Middle East and Central Asia, told a Washington audience that the continued loss of innocent civilian lives undermines everything America's trying to do in Afghanistan. And all of this as Congress prepares to vote on spending another $33 billion on that faraway war. Mayor Matt Ryan of Binghamton, New York, can't take it anymore. He calculates that by September 30th of this year, the citizens of Binghamton will have paid $138 million in taxes toward the occupation of Iraq and Afghanistan, and more if Congress passes the Obama request for supplemental funds. Binghamton is a small city of 47,000 people with an annual budget of $81 million. Facing a budget deficit, the mayor has to raise taxes or cut jobs. He says he is sick and tired of watching people in town squabble over crumbs while sending all that money to foreign wars. So next week, he will become the first mayor in the country to install on City Hall a large digital clock, adding up minute by minute how much the people of Binghamton are paying for those two wars. I hear them squeal. I see them preen. Fans all spread out. Neat and clean 
Head out to the porch Feel the wind stopping Feel the sun scorch We are all, we are all, all of us together We are breathing a little easier tonight because they have captured the Times Square bomber Faisal Shahzad The big break the big break came when an heroic Times Square sidewalk artist was able to provide this sketch of the culprit. All right? Police. Police were on the lookout for a skateboarding tennis player with a giant head. Now, I know I'm not supposed to profile, okay, but this, this Faisal character, Faisal, came from exactly where you'd expect, Connecticut. <laughs> when are we gonna close that border, ladies and gentlemen? And my worst, my worst suspicions were confirmed when I saw this photo. Now, I don't want to stereotype folks, but he's not just from Connecticut, he's a Connecticut douchebag. <laughs> That they've caught the guy, and it's this Faisal guy. It's a huge relief because some of the details about this case had really troubled me. This has been described as sort of amateurish, almost Rube Goldberg-like. Well, I would describe the bomb as a Rube Goldberg contraption. A Rube Goldberg-like approach, such a Rube Goldberg-esque kind of delivery system. And who was just on my show last Thursday with a homemade Rube Goldberg contraption? Okay, go! Now, I've had my suspicions about those guys ever since I saw their terrorist training video. But now... Now that I know it's not them, my apologies to you guys for reporting you to the feds. But... I am sure you'll be able to turn those Homeland Security rectal scopes into a YouTube sensation. Anyway, they got the guy, and this was no ordinary arrest. Last night, last second arrest of Faisal Shahzad, about to take off for Dubai. On the plane, the plane is backing off of the gate, moving onto the tarmac. The FBI got there in the nick of time, pulled him off that flight. It was a very close call. He almost got away. Incredible, dramatic form. A hair-raising thriller here to tell you about that began with a makeshift bomb and ended with a thwarted getaway. Yeah! <laughs> It's just like an action movie. It even has a black president. Yeah. Now, though it seems like Shahad almost got away, that may have been the plan the whole time. The theory is that the authorities let him get on board that plane, waited to the very last moment in case he made a last-minute phone call or shot an email to somebody or a text message trying to collect as much information as they could. That's a good thing they did, too, because Shahzad did make a last-second phone call on the plane, and the FBI has just released the audio. Jim? Thank you for calling the Taliban in Pakistan. We can't come to the phone right now. We're burning down a girl's school. Inshallah, you will leave a message at the... Hello, my brothers. It's Faisal Shazam. Although from now on, call me Faisal Shazam, because poof, I am gone. <laughs> oh, look, the in-flight movie is the blind side. I know I'm gonna cry. Oh, excuse me, infidel whore. Can I get another mimosa, please? Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We'll be returning to the gate momentarily. Oh, shit. So I have to commend the authorities not just for capturing this guy, but also for screwing with his head. We're a different pair, just something out of state. I am more proud of this show and love working on it more than anything else I've ever done in my life. And the members who sign up and stick with the show are the ones who allow me to follow my passion. Members sign up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year to support the show. In return, besides my undying gratitude, they also receive bonus material through the members-only raw feed. 
This includes audio and video content from the show and bonus material that would otherwise end up on the cutting room floor. All of this is delivered in organized feeds so members can access what they want and ignore what they don't. If you're a regular listener of this show and appreciate the service it provides, please consider becoming a member by visiting the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks a lot. It's hard to identify a value more essential to the American character than the belief that one is innocent until proven guilty, that the accused are presumed innocent until convicted in a court of law. And as the terrorists seek to make us shed those things that make us American, today, a handful of congressmen and senators proposed a law that would shed that most American of values, the presumption of innocence until trial. Our fifth story tonight, Senators Joe Lieberman and Scott Brown team up to take your citizenship away so you can be denied due process if you are accused, not even convicted, accused, not even of a crime, but accused of associating with groups the government would call terrorists. This, Senator Lieberman today calling a response to the arrest of American citizen Faisal Shahzad, a measure that would clear the way for denying future Shahzads their rights as a citizen, thereby improving their interrogation. This, as Attorney General Eric Holder testified today, that Shahzad is cooperating after the FBI advised him of his constitutional rights and beforehand under the public safety exception that allows questioning about possible imminent threats. Without getting into too much detail with regard to Shazad, um, the questioning under the public safety exception far exceeded the amount of time that we had with Mr. Abdul Matalab. And as I said, with regard to uh, Shazad, really made use of that exception to elicit a very substantial amount of information from him um, before the decision was made to give him his Miranda warnings. The president meeting with his national security team today, preparing a detailed request for intelligence from Pakistan to provide more information, the Washington Post reports. Pakistani Interior Minister Rehman telling Reuters it is unlikely, he thinks, Shahzad acted alone. Shahzad reportedly admitting to contact, contacts with the Pakistani Taliban. That group, however, now saying it had nothing to do with Shahzad, not even paying him, which does not strictly rule out their involvement in the attack, especially if other Pakistani terrorist groups were involved as intermediaries, perhaps. Shahzad's cooperation, however, not deterring Senators Lieberman and Brown for un unveiling their law for stripping citizenship, measures which were not taken against other other American citizens and groups who fought the U.S. government, ranging from the Timothy McVeighs to the Black Panthers to the Confederacy to the Hutari militia, and giving this citizenship power for those abroad to the Secretary of State, said to be empowered under a 1940 law to revoke citizenships of those Americans who joined foreign armies, but now potentially also empowered to decide whether Americans are affiliating with groups she or some successor would decide are terrorist. Under the Terrorist Expatriation Act, the State Department would be able to revoke the citizenship of an American who affiliates with a foreign terrorist organization uh, or, fights, or who fights against our country. And foreign terrorist organizations, uh, as uh, you're probably aware, are, are also designated according to statute by the State Department. The same due process that applies to the existing statute would apply to those whose citizenship is revoked under our proposed amendment to the law. In other words, none. The senator, arguing his law would prevent future Shahzads from returning to the country to attack us, apparently forgetting that no one knew about Shahzad's terrorist affiliations until after he, the bombing attempt. The plan so blatantly unconstitutional, even House Republican leader John Boehner was less concerned about America's safety than he was about the rights of the terrorists. Well, I've not uh, seen Senator Lieberman's uh, legislation, uh, but... Uh, uh, if they're a U.S. citizen until they're convicted of, uh, of some crime, I don't, I don't know how you would attempt uh, to take their citizenship away. It'd be pretty difficult under the U.S. Constitution. Cause I'm missing you I'm still alright to smile Girl, I think about you every day now Was a time when I wasn't sure But you set my mind at ease 
There is no doubt you're in my heart now. Jowly Joe Lieberman is back at his old tricks. As you may have heard, the great sanctimonious one is co-sponsoring a bill with Scott Brown called the Terrorist Expatriation Act. It would allow the State Department to revoke your citizenship if it suspects you're a terrorist. The key word there is suspects. Even before you've been charged with a crime, much less convicted of a crime, you're penalized for it. This makes a mockery of our system of justice, but Hillary Clinton's for it, and Nancy Pelosi says she supports the spirit of the measure. This shows you how little esteem there is these days for our constitutional rights, even within Democratic circles. Actually, it was Republicans who raised more of a stink about this one than the Dems. In his defense, Lieberman pointed out that his bill is like nothing compared to the authority that Obama has granted himself to assassinate U.S. citizens. Lieberman's right about that. It's another reason why Obama's claim that he can engage in extrajudicial killings needs to be repudiated, as does everything extrajudicial, including Lieberman's bill. find something to bitch about, so they got to make stuff up. He's going to talk about how we caught all the right guys, but the way we caught them and the way we got their confessions was slightly off. Oh, okay, cry me a river. Clip number seven. What do you think the Obama administration is doing as far as this Times Square bomb suspect, the whole case is concerned? Number one, for the second time, we were lucky. Uh, both yeah, of these, both yeah. Abdul Matalab and Faisal Shazid. Abdul Matalab being the uh, Christmas the, Day Christmas underwear Day bomber, bomber. Had had bombs on them. They were incompetent and didn't set them off. In both times, uh, concerned citizens moved in. The first case to throw blankets on him on the airplane. Second case to identify the smoke coming out of the vehicle. Uh, the law enforcement uh, efforts were very good. They they tracked down uh, Shazid. And uh, the one of the biggest mistakes that the Department of Justice, which is now running intelligence, has made in both cases, they Mirandized him. They told him, uh, they told both of them, they didn't have to talk and they were, they were entitled to a lawyer. But Eric Holder says he, this guy is talking. That they're fortunate. Yeah. Because most, uh, most uh, suspects, when you tell them that, will stop talking. Okay, he's lucky. Well, why won't he share what he's saying with us? That is, I think, anybody in the intelligence community will tell you, when you get a suspect who knows how uh, the terror ring operates, if he's part of a ring, you want to get from him what he knows and not give him the Miranda warning, which is only necessary, even for American citizens, if you want to use their words against him in a trial. And both of these fellas on Christmas Day in New York uh, and Times Square uh, have enough evidence that you could convict them. You don't need to Mirandize them. You don't need to give them that warning and potentially shut them up and certainly give them a lawyer who will tell them to be quiet. Uh, he, experts that say uh, you don't have to give them a Miranda warning. Really? Which experts? I've never heard an expert say that. Never. If they do, they have no idea what our justice system is about. They've never been inside an American court. You're going to tell a suspect, no, 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 don't give him his Miranda warnings. Who says that? And then second of all, he says, oh, no, no, most suspects uh, shut up when they get their Miranda warnings and they don't talk. Unbelievably untrue. Not even close to true. What's shocking, and I'm not a big fan of the Miranda warnings overall, but I'm not a fan of these guys saying, oh, all right, let's selectively do he doesn't get Miranda warnings, but he does. That terrorist doesn't because he looks brown skin, but that terrorist does because he looks nice and white. Okay, that's dumb. And especially if you have the system without changing it and you don't give them the Miranda warnings, and then what are you going to do? You're going to blow the case and you're going to let the guy out. Is that what you want, you idiot? Okay, and so 
He says, uh, most suspects shut up. And that, like I said, I'm not a big fan of the Miranda warnings. But they don't shut up. That's what's amazing. No, they continue to tell you exactly what happened in an overwhelming majority of the cases. See, these guys talk without having any facts. And, they, and I say it all the time. Their great advantage is that their uh, followers don't care about facts. They're not interested in facts. So they can say anything they like. And nobody's going to double check on them. And then uh, finally, the thing that really made me mad about that clip is how many times you say, oh, they got lucky. I got lucky. They, they were fortunate. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I know. Bush was really unlucky every time. He was unlucky with bin Laden. He was unlucky with Zawahiri. He was unlucky with the guys who did the anthrax stuff. He was so unlucky in all these different cases. Oh, he was unlucky when 9-11 happened. He was unlucky when Katrina happened, and he didn't respond, etc. Uh, but when Obama catches people, and it's not him, it's everybody put together, FBI, New York police, etc. When he catches them in 48 hours, oh, he got lucky. Oh, he was just fortunate. It's funny how he keeps getting lucky, and your doofus kept getting unlucky. Or perhaps, as you think, maybe facts matter. Maybe working hard matters. Maybe caring about the job matters. Maybe thinking that the government can work in protecting us, in catching the bad guys, etc. That might matter. Did you think about that, Kit Bond? You, the, anybody thinking to put these guys back in charge when they don't even believe in government, they don't believe in doing their job, you're crazy. Kit Bond, if he was president, as an example, he'd be like, ha, let's just sit around, wait to get lucky or unlucky. <laughs> well, what? Oh, no, golly gee, we, we didn't catch him. Well, we got unlucky. <laughs> oh, we caught him, but we tortured him. <laughs> Did we get any evidence? No. Who cares? We tortured him. Nah, nah, I guess we got unlucky that we didn't get any evidence. Idiots. You're the lucky one, so I've been told. As free as the wind blowing down the road. Loved by many, hated by none. I'd say you were lucky, cause I know what you've done. Not a care in the world, not a worry inside. Everything's gonna be alright, cause you're the lucky one. You're the lucky one, always having fun. A jack of all trades, a master of none. Wait is over. Today, Senator Joe Lieberman officially introduced his much-hyped, highly anticipated, almost certainly unconstitutional, strip-your-citizenship bill. Under the Terrorist Expatriation Act, the State Department would be able to revoke the citizenship of an American who affiliates with a foreign terrorist organization. Affiliates. What this uh, proposal would mean is that the State Department would decide what a terrorist organization is, right? They would then decide what constitutes affiliating with one. And then if they think you've done that affiliating, they just administratively decide that you're no longer an American. We'll get to the due process stuff later, bucko. I know you haven't been convicted of anything, but I hereby de-American you. Now kindly get on this plane to Guantanamo. We'll talk later. As excited as Senator Lieberman has been to promote this really quite radical legislation, it's not clear who he thinks is going to support it. Are the Democrats getting behind this? Senator Dick Durbin, the number two Democrat in the Senate, told Fox News today, quote, I really believe there are ways to make this country safe without abandoning some of our most fundamental principles. To remove a person's citizenship without some adjudication, in my mind, is a step too far. Okay, but, you know, Dick Durbin's a liberal. How about more conservative Democrats, people who do sometimes support Joe Lieberman on some of his kookier right-wing national security stuff? Well, Senator Lieberman proposed this once before. I took a look at it then. Last night I read my analysis, and my analysis was that it would not stand a constitutional test uh, based on uh, law made by the Supreme Court. Okay, so Democrats, left, right, and center, not supporting Joe Lieberman on his strip your citizenship thing. Maybe the administration would support him on this. I mean, this is one of the biggest attempted executive power grabs ever since co-president Cheney left town. The Obama White House has been pretty right wing on a lot of national security stuff. Maybe they'll support him on this? I have not heard anybody inside the administration that's been supportive of, uh, of that idea. Ow, that was pretty blunt. 
But, you know, even if the administration won't support him, even if Democrats on the right and Democrats on the left won't support him, there is still the Republican Party. There's got to be tons of support from, from, from Republicans on this, right? If they're a U.S. citizen until they're convicted of, uh, of some crime, I don't, I don't know how you would attempt uh, to take their citizenship away. Be pretty difficult under the U.S. Constitution. Senator Joseph I. Lieberman, thanks for playing. As jaw-dropping as the strip your citizenship legislation is, there appears to be no substantial support for it among liberal Democrats, among conservative Democrats, from the administration, or from the Republican leadership. So um, I think that means it's not going to be law. It is, however, going to be an important thing to remember forever about the judgment of Joe Lieberman and the three guys he got to go along with them on this one. Welcome to the Senate, Scott Brown. Now you're famous for something else. Thanks for listening, everyone. Now, don't you just love when you have two points to make and they meld together better than you could have possibly hoped or planned? Uh, well, that's what I have going on today. So point number one is just to comment on the show real quick. Can you believe that Lieberman keeps getting worse? I don't know about you guys, but I, I keep thinking every time I think, OK, he's finally bottomed out. No, really, he's incredibly awful. And I I can almost think of no one that I dislike or distrust more than him, but at least he can't go any lower. And I'm always, I'm always proven wrong by that guy. Um, you know, it, it's an amazing thing. I only have one basic theory on him uh, and it has, has a couple of points to it, which is that I think he just knows he's done. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's due out in 2012 and they hate him in Connecticut. You know, they, they've caught on to what he is. And so I think he just knows he's done. And so he's finally just letting his true colors fly. You know, he's been a Senator in Connecticut where it's, you know, people are really liberal. And so he's, I think had this kind of false air of uh, progressivism or liberalism uh, in him for a while. And now that they've caught on to his game and they're going to kick him out next time, I think he's just letting it all fly. And he, and he's being the, the, really horrible conservative douchebag that he's always wanted to be. And then the second point on that is, you know, I think he's said this, I, although I don't think I've heard the quote myself. I believe that he's said it. And if he has said it, I believe him when he says this, that he just doesn't like progressives, doesn't like liberals, doesn't, doesn't like the, the left wing and, and progressive ideas. And so he does things just to irritate us which I find amazing uh, and incredibly uh, petty and pathetic. So Lieberman, that's the first thing I want to say. Secondly, uh, I want to bring up the America's Future Now conference, of course, because it's uh, coming up in less than a month. And, um, and so I've been talking about it. And today I wanted to mention that I've been to the conference once before, uh, back in 2007, I believe. I, I actually moved to Washington, D.C. in 2007 in an effort to get involved in politics and all that sort of thing. And um, so in the summer of 2007, there was uh, not the America's Future Now conference, of course. It was uh, back then called the Take Back America conference. And so I had just gotten to uh, D.C. and had arrived just a few months earlier and of course didn't have the money to get into the conference, but I volunteered. That's the tricky way to get into the conference if you're interested, uh, which is one of the points I want to make. If you want to go to the conference, um, but don't have the money, look into volunteering. Uh, I, I, I haven't looked into it myself. I don't, I don't know if they're uh, still in need of volunteers, but that's definitely a way to get you in and it ends up not costing you anything and you get to feel like you're helping out a little bit. So anyways, back in 2007, I volunteered uh, you know, just for like half a day or something. And what I did was uh, worked at the registration tables. So when you work at the registration table, of course, you are there as all the uh, people are streaming in through the doors to, to get to the conference. And so you meet lots of people, you know, almost all of them, you know, just activists or whatever. 
but every once in a while you'll, you'll see someone you recognize. So like, for instance, I saw John Edwards and his uh, entourage walk through and, and whatnot. But the most exciting thing that happened to me, and this is where my two stories come together, is who comes right up to, uh, to my desk looking to register but Ned Lamont. And for those of you who don't remember, Ned Lamont was actually the Democrat who was running against Lieberman in the Senate race. Just in case you weren't aware, Lieberman is genuinely not a Democrat. He formed his own party because he lost the primary to Ned Lamont. So in order to stay in the race, he had to form an independent party, just like the, the Joe Lieberman party. So that was very exciting for, for me to uh, to meet Ned Lamont. I uh, I believe I, I recognized him fast enough and you know realized who he was and had my wits about me enough to uh, thank him for his service and his efforts and um, you know gave him a good uh, you know we'll we'll get him next time sort of thing. And then just you know real quick, the other fun thing that happened was uh, you know while I was there for, for my one day of volunteering. I was able to sneak away from my duties for a little while, and I, I got into the big, um, you know, I don't know what it is, like the, the big auditorium room where people were giving speeches, and on the day that I was there, uh, John Edwards and Barack Obama were both giving their speeches to the crowd, and so I, I snuck in and actually heard, you know, maybe three quarters of, of John Edwards' speech and then listened to all of Barack Obama's speech. And, you know, the difference in the crowd was amazing. You know, like John Edwards just, he really just didn't have the crowd behind him. You know, he was not getting great feedback. And then Barack Obama, of course, he was just bringing the house down. You know, people were going crazy for it. And totally coincidentally, I, pro I, I wasn't stalking him or anything. I, I, didn't, I didn't sneak up behind him. But as it turned out, uh, I, I was standing in the auditorium, kind of in the back of the room, near, of all people, Jank Huber from the Young Turks. And so when, um, when the whole thing concluded and people started walking out, he turned around. And I was like, oh, hey, I recognize that guy. And so I went up and, uh, and we, we talked and kind of discussed the, uh, the chances of the, the people we had just seen talk. And, and we pretty much agreed uh, yeah, that, that Barack Obama, he seems kind of unstoppable. For a guy who can talk like that um, and, and get the crowd behind him like that, you, I, I think we were both mentioning that you, you kind of have to feel bad for John Edwards. You know, at, at least at the time, we didn't know what a terrible person he was. So we were like, man, you got to feel bad for that guy because he doesn't sound that bad. And like, he seems like an okay guy, but he just doesn't stand a chance, does he? So there you go. That, those are my fun stories from the conference of years past. Uh, I, of course, I hope to have even more fun this time around. I'll be much more involved and engaged than I was just uh, just on my, my one-day, half-day volunteering stint. So as I mentioned in, uh, in the previous episode, I, I am confident that something will be happening during those three days. The, uh, the conference is uh, June 7th through the 9th. And so if you are in or around D.C., whether you attend the conference or not, uh, you know, drop me a line if you want to be included in whatever may happen. I'll just put you on a list and I'll be able to send out emails uh, to any of you interested people who, uh, who want to be involved. You know, like listener meetup or, uh, you know, march on the White House, you know, whatever kind of craziness goes on. I mean, there's going to be a lot of progressives uh, in D.C. all at the same time, so... Uh, who knows what sort of craziness may ensue, but I, I hope to be plugged in to the events uh, happening and then I can turn around and uh, plug you in as well. Now I'm just going to thank a couple of members. Uh, Sandra S. signed up for her monthly membership uh, way back on October 25th. A couple old school members. Uh, so Sandra S. and uh, Mason C. signed up for his monthly membership back on November 19th. Uh, you know, so a couple of people who've been uh, sticking with their membership for months and months now. So huge thanks to both of them, um, you know, for supporting the show for, uh, for so many months, month after month. The members are simply what make the show possible. <laughs> just, it is just that simple. So if you are interested in, uh, in that program, all the details you could possibly want can be found at the membership tab at bestofleft.com. 
Now, finally, please keep those votes coming in for the Netroots Nation scholarship that I'm going for. Help us reach uh, the goal I've set of uh, 600 supporters because I'm confident that uh, if we can get that many, that'll that'll get me to the top of the list and, and get me that scholarship that's going to help pay my way to Netroots Nation. Uh, the link to that, just go to the, the website. There's a big banner at the top, Netroots Nation scholarship competition. Click through, add your name. It's just that easy. So that's going to do it for today. Stay tuned into the show between episodes on Facebook and Twitter. Details on the show, including links to the sources and music used in every episode, are on the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month now, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white bought a picture that wasn't right Bitch burning on a shiny sheet The only maker that you wanna meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out in the open door This is not my life It's just a fire